Welcome to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Our topic today is the science of growing food crops. What can be done to ensure the farmer's crop succeeds? And what is being done to ensure that our food is safe to eat? We talk with a crop specialist at a world-leading science company here at their offices in Cambridge. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. This week on The Science Show, we focus on growing food crops. The growing world population puts an increasing demand to farm the land two, three or more times effectively than we used to. But growing crops is risky, and what farmers want more of is a guarantee that their efforts will bear fruit. At the same time, consumers obviously want a guarantee that their food is free from harmful additives. Well, some weeks back, I visited an agricultural show looking for people involved in making farming more scientific. It was there, luckily, I met Bayer Crop Science, and ultimately got to speak with one of their experts at the base in the Cambridge Science Park. I spoke with Dr Julian Little and we talk about a variety of topics for the next 18 minutes or so. So here we have uh, Bayer Crop Science, been in Cambridge now for quite a long time and in the UK for uh, nigh on 100 years actually. Bayer Crop Science is uh, um, a big German company and we are the biggest supplier of pesticides or crop protection products in the UK. In this particular one, are there labs? Most of our fundamental research is done elsewhere, in some cases in Europe, in places like Germany or Belgium or the Netherlands. Although we do do some research work and it will tend to be more field-based. So this is where we'll be testing products in the field, on the farm, to make sure that they work in a UK-specific environment. So with proper farmers being able to look at our products and saying, yes, that works in our situation. So the question I forgot to ask is, what does Bayer do? Bayer is a pretty big company. It's rare in the sense of it's a life sciences company. So we do pharmaceuticals. We do over-the-counter products as well. So if you take a Barocca or something like that, it'll be a Bayer product. But we also do agrochemicals, which means pesticides or crop protection products for farmers and growers to grow Um, our food and then we also do um, some work on plastics for example the world cup football is made from a bayer plastic so the kinds of scientists here well we have a number of scientists who either started off as scientists and they're doing things other than that or there are scientists that are either looking at things in a field situation or will be looking at data coming in from all sorts of different places and uh, making sure that that data makes sense make sure that our products can be used safely and properly and make recommendations for either the company to go forward or in some cases submitting data to the government so that they can look at that and determine whether our products can be used in the UK. Essentially for any of our products to be used in the field you have to get permission to do so, so what they call a regulatory approval. Now, that will involve a number of scientists gathering up data on the safety of our products, but also on things like the environmental impact of our products. Because, as you can imagine, if you were to misuse a pesticide or not use it in the proper way, then, of course, you could do damage in the environment. So we have to demonstrate that if you use these products properly, 
they will be able to control the pests and diseases that you have to control if you want to make high-quality, affordable food, but not in a way that would damage the environment in, in, in any way. Okay, so this is like uh, a doctor giving me a medicine and me taking the wrong dose at the wrong time. And the... Yes, indeed, although in some ways for a pesticide... It's not just about the safety of it, which is what it tends to be for a medicine. It's also also about what happens to it in the environment. Because if you think about it, you know, your average medicine isn't sprayed over fields or isn't uh, used to treat seeds. An agrochemical has to be even more safe than some medicines because we need to make sure that it doesn't harm the environment as well. What will normally happen is that you will have, within a laboratory situation, you'll have chemists making uh, particular products, so uh, particular chemicals. Um, you'd then have biologists out there who would spray those chemicals on a plant or an insect or a fungus um, within a greenhouse situation. And then in my case, so I'm a biochemist by trade, um, you'd actually be testing to see how those chemicals worked and to identify where in the plant, for example, if it was a herbicide or a weed killer, where in that plant does that chemical kill that plant? Oh. And that, that's, a, that's a really important thing. It, obviously, again, if it were to be hitting something in a plant that's also in a human, mm-hmm. then you might think, hmm, there might be a problem with, with the safety of that product. But if it's a, a very new target site, a new enzyme that nobody's ever seen before or seen as a target site before, then that's really quite exciting. And in my time, we've seen those sort of things happening. Now, when you've got all of that information together, so when you know whether it's active, when you know that it's, uh, it's an interesting chemical, we might send those back to the chemists and say, right, we want lots more chemicals that are like this one. So you might change something subtly around the structure of that chemical, much as you would with a Lego set, if you like, in terms of just making small changes and then seeing, you know, taking that chemical back and spraying it in the greenhouse and checking to see whether it's maybe more active or it has a broader spectrum so it will kill more things that you need to kill or it might be better in the environment or it might be safer. So that's what they call optimising your, um, your products. And then if you get even further, you might take that into a field and uh, do even more work, do a lot more testing in the environment. So it's, it's a very long process actually and sometimes can take up to... 10 or 12 years to go right from that first chemical that that a biologist sprayed in in the greenhouse to being able to sell it in the the real world. And pretty much it's quite expensive as well. You're talking two or three hundred million pounds. Whoa. I mean, that's that's analogous to drug development, is it not? It's very, very similar. So the the whole idea of chemists busily working in the the chemistry department, producing interesting things, hopefully, for a biologist to be testing or a biochemist to be testing. And then, of course, the bit that takes all the time is the making sure it's safe, making sure it's safe to people that are using the chemical or people that might be exposed to them, um, or, of course, the environment in which it's going to be used. Okay. So presumably in days past, you'd come up with an idea, pop it in a bag and sell it. But today that must be very difficult. It's true to say that in the 1960s, for example, you, you could get uh, probably, say, one in a thousand chemicals that you, uh, you tried. You'd, you'd, you could find a product. These days it's closer to one in a million. 
So that'll give you an idea of how much more complicated it is to be able to get something to the market. And I, I said that it, it took 10 to 12 years to bring something to the market. Pretty much all of that time is taken up with making sure things are safe and good for the environment. So the discovery bit is a lot easier in terms of time that it will take than it does to, to make sure that it's safe and, um, and desirable. What about the kind of there's safety and then there's kind of knock-on effects? When, when you're testing your product for the first time, what you're looking for is, does it kill the weed that I'm trying to kill? Because you need to kill weeds to be able to grow the food you want to grow. Mm -hmm. Does it kill an insect that will eat the plant? Or can it kill the fungus that will um, eat that plant or make the quality so low that nobody would want to eat it? So all of these things are called pesticides and you know, you're not allowed to sell them unless they work. Of course you're not. However, you have to be very careful when you're, you're doing these things because these things have to go out into the environment. People will eat the food from You have to do huge numbers of tests to make sure that there aren't any unexpected strange things happening. Pretty intense process. takes a lot of scientists' work, but actually it's worth it because what you end up with is a farmer or a grower being able to control the diseases and the pests and everything else that they need to control so that when you go to the fridge, you know that the food that you're taking out of that fridge is safe in terms of at least the things that have been used on it. In the case of Bayer Crop Science, we've been celebrating last year our 150th year as Bayer. So this year's 151 years. It's quite important for us that we're still there in the future as well. You know, we've got a big history and uh, it's really important that we do things right, that we, we, uh, we make the right decisions. So yes, of course, there are lots and lots of different regulations but you won't be at all surprised we go over and above those regulations to make sure that not only are the regulators and the governments around the world that are happy with what we're doing, but that we're happy too. Okay, so in a sense you're setting the pace of... Absolutely. So in the UK, Bayer Crop Science is the largest agrochemical supplier and we take that responsibility very, very seriously. Okay, so I will see the brand somewhere stuck on a... We um, indeed, we have what they call the Bayer Garden range of products as well. So that will be, in some cases, things like Baby Bio uh, as a fertiliser or even Provado as an insecticide range. These things were originally developed for uh, larger scale use, but we found that they can be used very well and very safely at a garden level as well. Okay. So curiously, how does one particular weed killer happen to know to kill everything except grass? When you're trying to control some weeds in your lawn, when you're spraying your, um, your lawn with a watering can or whatever, you've got both physical differences between the weeds and the grass and also a, a biochemical difference, if you like. And the, the, the physical reason is quite simply that uh, you know, the, the real problem weeds in your lawn are broadleaf weeds, so they tend to be wider leaves and will actually catch the chemical more than these spiky long leaves of the grass where actually a lot of the chemical just runs off the grass so that's one of the reasons why you, you're able to control weeds in your grass on the biochemical side of things actually grasses are tougher they're, they're more resistant to the things that we put on there they are better able to grow in the presence of chemicals than broadleaf weeds and that's purely a biochemical reason they're just more active and more able to break these products down which is fine for your lawn 
but actually it's a problem when it comes to the fields mm-hmm. where grass weeds are a real problem within our crop plants like wheat and barley and oilseed rape and all these things. That's excellent. Not just weed killers, is it? What, what sorts of things <coughs> are they? What does a farmer use? Yes. So, so for, for a farmer to grow his crop, and if you think about it, what you're trying to do is give your crop a chance to grow. So what you want to do is to kill weeds around that crop because the weeds will cut down the amount of light that gets to the crop. It'll also steal the water and some of the nutrients in the soil. So you need to control those weeds to allow your crop to flourish. There are also pests, things like little insects that will come down in there. They won't just eat the crop, and that's one problem, but they'll also spread diseases, viral diseases, which are impossible to control in any other way. So frequently a farmer will control an insect, not because he's worried about the insect, but because of what the insect might be spreading. A bit like if you think about it, malaria and mosquitoes. So you're not really worried about the mosquito itself. What you're really worried about is what are the diseases that the um, mosquito is carrying. And then there are fungal diseases. So this is where you'd need a fungicide to make sure that your potatoes don't go all mushy before you even pick them up or your wheat doesn't keel over because it's got a, a big infection. In the UK, where it's quite warm and quite wet in the spring and into the summer, Fungi are real problems, and you you do need to be very careful to make sure you can control diseases within your crops. Something I think defines scientists is that they measure things. So what unit do you look at and say, hmm, that's good? Well, for a biochemist, we were always interested in the lowest amount of something that you can put on a plant to kill it. From a biochemical perspective... I'm always interested in things that kill a plant at nanomolar levels. So things like uh, 10 to the minus 9 molar. If we're talking about in the greenhouse, what I want to see is things that are working at grams per hectare rather than kilograms per hectare. In the 1960s, we used to use things that used maybe 5, maybe 10 kilos a hectare. These days, you can routinely get away with, say, 100 grams a hectare. One thing I understand that people do is they breed crops to ensure that they do better. The other thing they're doing is trying to select or trying to adjust the genetic makeup of the plant. In some ways, all breeding is about changing the genetic makeup of your plant. Okay. And it's also true, of course, for animals, if you're breeding a dog or if you're breeding a cow or Dolly the sheep or whatever. But breeding is generally about trying to be quite specific about what the genetics are of your organism. So if you're talking about a new variety of carrot you can do things by traditional breeding Mm -hmm. or you can try and do things in a slightly more organized way or in some cases in a very random way so for example so many of our crop varieties today came from some work done at nuclear power stations where they would literally mutate seed so they take a bag of seed and stick it by the nuclear reactor it would be irradiated with gamma radiation and they'd go away and plant those seeds and see if there was something interesting in that seed. Now, if you think about it, that is about as random mutating as you could possibly imagine. So in some cases, in fact, in most cases with those seed, the seed just didn't germinate properly or or the plant wasn't functional. But there were some plants that were better. So they might yield more or they might be better at uh, dealing with disease. So they would find occasional plants that would give them something. And that's what they call random mutagenesis. You can do it with a chemical or you can do it with radiation. And bizarrely enough, that's now considered to be quite conventional. 
And there are other sorts of breeding where you want to bring in totally new genes, but in a very specific way. So, for example, genetic modification or transgenics or however you want to describe it. These are ways where you would go and look for your gene. So for your carrot, you might look for a gene that uh, is resistant to drought. So you'd go away and look for a plant or even an animal if you, if, if you want to go far enough away that is able to withstand drought. And you'd look for the gene that gives you that drought tolerance. And you'd say, OK, I'll take that gene and put it in the carrot and let's see whether that carrot is now drought resistant. And if it is, then you could go ahead and and do some more work to make sure it's safe and and it works fine and and everything else. There's nothing else strange about that carrot. And you might then say, okay, I'm now going to commercialise that carrot. Now, that's what they call genetic modification. It's a very specific way of changing that carrot, not like the random way of doing so using mutagenesis. And yet, bizarrely enough, Genetic modification is considered to be very different and needs a lot more regulation than that random way of doing things. So the conventional way is the way which is generally accepted. Yes, so conventional breeding is whatever is accepted on the day. So if you say, yes, you're okay to do random breeding or breeding by normal crossing in the greenhouse, in whatever way, that's fine because that's considered to have been done for a long time and that's conventional. Whereas things like genetic modification... Even though that's been around now for, what, 20 years, commercial use now, that's still considered to be unconventional. Now, on my way in, I noticed a, a display ticking, or a clock ticking away, saying population is increasing and the amount of arable land is decreasing. There are some big problems out there. Okay. And the one that I always talk about is how much land there is to feed people. Mm-hmm. So in, in the 1950s, an area the size of Wembley Stadium used to have to feed two people. These days, it has to feed four people. And if we go through to 2050, it's going to have to feed more than six people. So if you can imagine, that's the sort of imperative that we have, that with increasing population, with decreasing amounts of land, with climate change and all these other things, our ability to grow more food on the same area has got to increase, otherwise there simply won't be enough food to go around. But it would seem that if I go into my supermarket, that successful stuff is now organic, so everyone is wanting to buy organic. Uh, it's interesting that you say that, because actually organic food and uh, organic farming has actually been on the decrease over the last few years. For whatever reason, I think it's a combination of organic food tending to be more expensive, of course. Um, But also I think some of the myths around organic farming have been exploded. Do you know, you can grow food in a conventional way, in a way that's very environmentally friendly. And likewise, you can grow organic food in a bad way. It's not about the label that you give the food. It's about the farmers and growers and their advisors and the scientists behind all of that that will make the difference. So our view is always... We provide products for organic farmers as well, but there should be always room for everybody out there, whether you want to eat high-quality, affordable food that's grown conventionally or organic. So it's up to people. And a final question. I do throw this question at all sorts of people. Here you are, Julian, in this role which has developed over the many, many years. But is there something you did at school which you never thought you'd use? When I was at school, I got in continual trouble for not studying French. I was always interested in the science subjects and I didn't understand the need for languages. 
when I moved to France with the company and lived there for nearly three years, I did write back to my French teacher and say, OK, you were right. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Junior. Thanks there to Dr Julian Little at Bayer Crop Science. As Julian mentioned, Bayer is a major company, established first in Germany 150 years ago, a company with 110,000 employees, wow. and they make human and animal pharmaceuticals, healthcare products, agricultural chemicals, biotechnical products and specialist plastic. And if you're wanting to learn more and find examples, for example, of the kind of advice that's given to farmers, say, on what to do when with their crops, I recommend a click to their website. You'll find even phone apps to identify pests and weeds and plant diseases. And I was intrigued to find examples of new seeds that farmers could buy and to learn about the kinds of characteristics that a farmer might be looking for in a seed. The place to look is bayercropscience.co.uk. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>